From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. approach to tackling coronavirus is to prepare for the worst and work for the best. You need a totally different style of leadership. It's not enough to have a plan. You need to be testing, testing, testing. Britain and the EU, do they want to be seen as locking horns on an issue such as a no-deal Brexit when the economy is going to be suffering and people's lives are going to be facing so much disruption? Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. Now, inevitably, we're looking at the state of the virus or antivirus operation that's going on here in the UK. Top UK officials are now accepting the country hasn't really done enough to test for the virus. Downing Street blaming a shortage of chemical components, saying it won't be until the middle of this month until the UK can actually hit its target of testing 25,000 people a day. And that uh, total has been compared unfavourably to what's going on, for example, in Germany. But speaking this morning, the Community Secretary, Robert Jenrick, revealed that we currently only have the capacity to carry out about half of the 25,000 people a day target for checks. We think within days we'll be able to go from our present capacity, as I say, of 12,750 to 15,000. So that's a significant increase. And then mid-April is when we expect to be at 25,000. Well, joining us now is Alison Thulis, the MP for Glasgow Central and SNP Shadow Treasury spokesperson as well. Alison, good to have you with us this morning. Hi, uh, good, uh, good morning. Hi. So let's start with talking about how the tests are being run in Scotland. Is it the same as the, the, the wider UK system? How far are you working together with London on, on sort of testing, ventilators, PPE, all the areas where we're seeing difficulties at the moment? Uh, well, the Scottish Government are working rapidly to extend the capacity in the NHS labs that we have here. Um, and we've already doubled in the last two weeks to 1,900 tests per day. And we're looking to increase that um, by the end of April. Um, but I think it's important that um, we're figuring out who to test um, and where that where that is most important, I suppose, is to support the care of those who are most seriously ill, to support frontline health workers and to get them back into work and to stay in work, and as well as the kind of surveillance testing as well to see how the, the virus is spreading. Um, but I think what is important here is to look at um, perhaps the timescales the UK government should have been working to, that perhaps this should have been started you know, way back January, February, rather than getting to this point and then worrying about the supplies. And I don't feel that the UK government have really taken this seriously enough, early enough, um, to make sure that everything was in place. But to what extent is the Scottish government in Edinburgh able to act independently of that? Are they able, for example, to, to source their own ventilators, their own uh, personal protection equipment, or does it have to be in total coordination across the UK? 
I think it's important that it sh- there needs to be coordination globally on this as well. So it shouldn't be that we're trying to get ventilators you know, away from somebody else that needs them as well. We need to work together to establish what the need is and to establish uh, where those need to go at the front line. And I think the UK government and the Scottish government have been working reasonably well together on this wherever we can. And that needs to continue. This can't be about competing against one another here. We're in the midst of a global crisis and we have to work closely together. So is the aim then in Scotland also to be testing primarily key workers rather than ambition to roll out wide scale testing like we're hearing out of London? I think, as as I said, we need to be looking at the surveillance testing as well. Um, We need to look at the possibility of antibody tests as opposed to just the diagnostic tests. But we need to roll this out in a kind of sensible, um, measured way as well. And I think people have seen some of the um, stuff in the news from yesterday about the development of those tests, which is happening in Scottish universities at the moment. Um, And everyone is working incredibly hard to try and make this happen. But all this is going to cost money, Alison. I mean, you're you're the the Treasury spokesperson for the SNP, of course, uh, in Westminster. Do you you think that the money, the way the money is being divided up, the way the money is being allocated, and specifically, I guess, how Scotland works its share of that, do you think that's all working as it should? I think we need to look seriously about the allocation of the money. So, for example, Barnett Formula... Um, really isn't fit for purpose for what we're doing here. We're looking at really unprecedented times. So the UK government's um, package for um, business rate support, for example, is quite different in Scotland. We've got a different business base with more small and rural businesses. So what we've been asking for is to make sure that that is taken account of when the money is allocated, um, because our scheme is quite different reflecting that. Um, Our business rate scheme looks different to, um, it looks in England slightly. So we need to have that um, taken into account. We've also got a very rural population that we need to try and look after as well, um, disproportionately to um, how that sits in England. So I know the, there has been lots of conversations between the UK and Scottish governments on this, and I would just encourage the UK government to, to play their part and to make sure that that is acknowledged um, in the funding that comes. Just staying on the money issue, do you think that the UK went far enough? I look at a report from the BBC today, some research suggesting that nearly a fifth of all small and medium-sized businesses across the UK unlikely to get the cash they need to survive for the next four weeks, which is pretty alarming reading, especially the given the bumper announcements we had over the course of the last week. Yes, I would absolutely agree with that. I think what's particularly difficult for small, small businesses, and small businesses at this particular time of year as well, they've maybe seen through Christmas, which can sometimes be a, a quieter time for people, particularly in the hospitality industry, for... Uh, the agricultural sector, and they now don't have the reserves to fall back on. And what the UK government has predominantly offered is loans to businesses. Now, loans are okay if that's for deferred earnings, but where you're not getting earnings in at all for your business, uh, that's just adding more debt for the future. Um, And grants could be a better way of seeing those businesses through until they can get back up and running again. Adding increasing debt to businesses, I know lots of smaller businesses and some bigger businesses as well are quite nervous about taking on extra debt when they don't know how long this will last and what the economy will look like when we get back out of this. So I would certainly encourage the UK government to look more broadly at those terms, at those types of support and whether um, grants could be provided. Um, and for the larger businesses, for example, airlines have been talked about whether the UK government wants to take a stake in these businesses to support them through this. Um, and provide better value for money for the taxpayer. Uh, Alison, what have you been hearing yourself from from your constituents about these kind of issues? Because where you are, Glasgow Central, obviously there's a lot of industry there, a lot of small and big businesses, uh, and also people who, who, who have jobs that are perhaps in, under threat. What are the kind of stories you've been hearing? 
a whole range of things, really. I mean, there's been people who feel as though they don't fit within the, the schemes that have been proposed. So people who perhaps haven't been working for long enough to um, qualify for the, the business support, people who maybe started their businesses last year who don't have the full years, uh, the full kind of tax returns to evidence uh, their business, uh, people who are self-employed who don't fit within either the, the employed or the, um, the other scheme that's been announced uh, last week by the Chancellor, um, people who are perhaps on zero hours contracts who can't apply for these schemes as well and maybe only, if only, uh, can get access to statutory sick pay. Some people can't get that at all. Um, and students who've been perhaps working in part-time jobs who now find themselves in a situation where they aren't able to, to work in those part-time jobs because they just don't exist anymore. So there's a huge range of people who are really struggling at the moment and the systems that exist that are in place, such as universal credits, um, are completely overwhelmed. And you, you can see from the universal credit system and the stats there, applications have ab absolutely soared. And there's a capacity issue in the DWP in making sure that people can get access to that money. And what we've been calling for all along is a kind of universal basic income where the government could simply get that money out the door to people um, to help people survive through these, first, through these uh, coming weeks and months. That would be a far simpler scheme to me rather than mm. setting up all these these convoluted schemes where people have to apply and prove things and provide documentation because at the moment people really are struggling um, and they don't know how they're going to be able to feed their families and pay their bills. Uh, and what about the Scottish Government's own emergency bill that's going through? I'm referring to the part of it that uh, suspends, at least for the for the meantime, jury trials. This has been something that certain parts of, of the legal community have found quite alarming. The Scottish Criminal Bar Association saying it undermines people's right to justice. Do you understand the concerns there? Well, I think the Scottish Government has understood the concerns there because I've been watching the debate in the Scottish Parliament this morning and they have said that they'll come, they are going to um, change how that's going to operate and um, they've taken account of the concerns that people have had on that um, and they're not going to go forward with those, proceed with those um, proposals as they were initially written. But I think it's really a, a sign of quite how quickly we're having to move on this, um, that there isn't enough time to give people the, the usual um, time to scrutinise things. Things are moving very fast and the Scottish Government have listened on this and there's been some reassurance given there as well, which I think is, is very much welcomed. Yeah, what about the Westminster Parliament? I mean, obviously you're in recess. There's been a suggestion that you should resume on April the 21st. Do you think that's realistic or even desirable in the current circumstances? Well, I think we'll have to see what happens over the next couple of weeks. Um, I mean, Parliament, when it goes into recess, has to provide a date for when we're supposed to go back. Whether that is the date that we go back or not remains to be seen. I think we need to see how far through we are of this crisis. I think there's um, real practical issues about how people get to Parliament and members of Parliament from from Northern Ireland, from parts of Scotland, will find it very difficult just practically to get to London at the moment if flights aren't running, if trains aren't running, as, as we're used to. So I think we need to look at those practical considerations. The select committees uh, are still meeting and they've been meeting virtually. I'm a member of the Treasury Select Committee and we had our, our first Zoom meeting yesterday, which is, is quite different in terms of how you do things. But I think the Parliament need, itself needs to think about how we can practically keep things running if lots of members of Parliament can't physically get to the building, which I think will be the case for lots of MPs. Yeah, just take, take us inside, Alison. How did that Zoom? Because that's an unusual thing for a Parliament to meet on Zoom. Did it work? It, it was different, um, but yeah, I think it did work. We were able to kind of ask the questions that we wanted to. Um, we had ev very good evidence from the, the CBI and the TUC yesterday about how they feel the schemes that the government had proposed were working. We all got the chance to ask our questions and have them answered. 
So it's possible. Um, it's not easy. And certainly replicating that with 650 MPs would be a lot more difficult than with a, sel- a select committee, which is much smaller. But I think there's definitely ways of how we can do this, how we can make sure our questions are asked and answered by ministers. And I know the parliamentary authorities are thinking about this um, and how, how this can be done. Parliaments around the world are struggling with how they can keep business running mm. um, in the face of this unprecedented virus. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Roger, what have we got? Well, it's the post-lockdown app. You knew there was going to be one. Uh, but it's uh, the government said to be preparing a new app which alerts people if they're too close to someone who's tested positive for the disease. Now, according to Sky News, the app's going to operate on an opt-in basis and will be released either just before or just after the lockdown's lifted. And the idea is the app will detect other phones nearby using short-range Bluetooth signals and then store a record of those contacts on the device. Now, if someone tests positive for COVID-19, they'll be able to upload those contacts who can then be alerted. So it's a kind of modern take, I suppose, on pointing at people and shouting unclean or something. Yeah, number of concerns here. One, is this a new version of the Matt Hancock app? Is this the latest iteration? Two, why would anybody do this and share their contacts? Three, there are so many more people who've got it than who are tested positive. It's just not going to be thorough enough to be effective. But hey, let's see how this one plays out. I will leave my reservations to one side for a minute. Next up, we're going to talk about David Blunkett, the former Home Secretary. He's weighing in on the police overreach that we've been talking about in the last few shows. The police sort of taking the law and interpreting it in, in, in various ways to crack down on people who are not doing correct social distancing. So writing in the Daily Mail, he says this must never become a nation where people risk arrest for walking their dogs, visiting beauty spots or making impulse buys. I'm far from alone in feeling worried by a sudden crackdown on inconsequential offences. There is an old maxim, he says, give people a bit of power and they will inevitably use it. And that's Mm. certainly something we're seeing uh, in places like Hungary and Poland, perhaps. Yes, yes, we haven't quite reached that stage yet, but who knows. Meanwhile, uh, the Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, is expected to provide support for charities who are facing imminent collapse due to the virus crisis. Charity sector bosses have been predicting a £4 billion loss as a social distancing measures or a social distancing measures shut charity shops and cancel sponsored events. And the first aid charity, St John Ambulance, which is helping the NHS manage the crisis, say they're going to run out of money in August without help from the government. According to the Daily Telegraph, proposals will likely be regulatory measures rather than funding, for example, relaxing the rules surrounding charities' ability to claim their employees' wages back while they're not working due to the coronavirus. That's one option being considered. Mm. And then is panic buying starting to calm down? The Times reporting that supermarkets are beginning to lift restrictions. Uh, yesterday, Waitrose, I've got you down as a Waitrose man, Roger, so listen no, up. They're no. saying there was no... Lo- really? 
What's your What's your supermarket Lidl. of choice? Lidl. Yes. Your team Lidl. Yeah, man. Oh, well, get get this. Lidl lifting restrictions on tinned and dried goods, so we can I all live through the apocalypse. Waitrose, which is relevant to neither of us, but presumably some of our listeners, saying there's no longer a need to cap purchases of fresh food. They've been doing that, but they are going to keep stuff in place on the website. Uh, and then you've got Tesco, Sainsbury's, Asda, haven't done anything yet, but they're expected to follow over the coming days. They're the biggies, of course, so they're going to affect the most people. Right. Well, let's bring in Bloomberg opinion columnist Therese Raphael uh, to talk about some of all of this. Uh, Therese, welcome to the program. Um, let's first Thank of all you. pick up on the story, which I think is still in a way the government's Achilles heel or being seen that way, which is the provision of testing. It's a vexed issue. It's been vexed pretty much from the beginning, a sense that somehow the UK is well behind uh, some of its European counterparts in doing this. And the government, well, Michael Gove, uh, yesterday admitting pretty much they were a bit behind the curve. What do we know about the government's way forward on this and and what they're going to do? Well, I mean, it's been a perplexing uh, sort of failure of government policy pretty much from the start because it was clear from the uh, Asian countries that had done widespread testing, especially South Korea, that uh, you know, the only way you get healthcare workers back into the front lines where they can treat COVID-19 patients, um, the only way you help people self-isolate, given the high number, um, you know, maybe up to 20%, according to the uh, chief South Korean medical officer dealing with this, of asymptomatic patients who can transmit the or asymptomatic carriers is to test. Now, the uh, government has claimed that it has uh, ordered a lot of tests, that there is a, a lack of these, the reagent, the chemical needed to make the test work. But one of the big problems is that it's focused on, you know, one um, key facility, for example, for processing and for processing the test rather than allowing laboratories all over the country to sort of ramp up their testing and um, and processing capacity. So it seems to be, you know, this desire to keep things centralized. Um, and the, the government keeps promising that it's going to test more. But we are way behind Germany and some other countries in the number of tests. And it's not clear that they're going to get anywhere near those, those levels of testing um, you know, very soon. I think this is, uh, you know, this is one of two big crises that are uh, th- that are brewing in this response, and the other is obviously the protective equipment for medical staff, which is um, uh, yeah, there are huge shortages, confusions, and guidance, and uh, that that's blowing up too. I think maybe not as as loudly as testing, but it's going to be a huge issue. So, picking up Therese on on the need to keep things centralised, or the desire at least to keep things centralised, is that why the government isn't requisitioning stuff that's made in the UK? I'm banging the drum for the Mail here, who today say they've found a company in Southampton that's making uh, testing swabs and then shipping them abroad. And surely there's an easy way for the government to make sure that they stay on our shores and help our people. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's 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 almost inexplicable how many sort of routes there are to sort of to either to getting these to getting tests to uh, using la- existing laboratory capacity um, and it's sort of inexplicable why the government hasn't done more there and I don't think Michael Gove really um, uh, gave an explanation of that he focused on shortages of reagents and uh, and and promised as as other officials have that the testing will be increased but um, you know that's just one report among many of 
unused capacity in the country. And surely, as you know, as the Germans have said, there has to be uh, a question of political will here. If you you know, if you want to test, surely there are ways to get tests, get the labs going, and uh, you know, and, and roll that out much you know, a, a much greater scale. Therese, let's pick up on the other item which we mentioned actually in the other news just now, which was to do with what's happening in, in terms of the attitude towards policing in, in all this, because it has mm. become quite a vexed issue, not least because I think people are now looking to the longer timescale the government seems to be suggesting and wondering the extent to which people will be willing or even able to stick to the kind of solid lockdown we have now for that length of time and how much enforcement will be needed. I, I imagine there must be a lot of scratching of heads in Parliament and some concern. Well, we haven't gone as far as Russia yet, which has actually made it a, you know, a, a criminal offense um, punishable by prison sentence, of, you know, for breaking even, I think, I think leaving your, your property with a uh, COVID-19 uh, positive, uh, you know, diagnosis. So, you know, but, but the, you know, this raises very difficult issues of uh, personal liberty versus public health. And I think much will depend on how the police themselves interpret the instructions given them. And if it's felt that there's sort of overzealous application of these restrictions, you know, people sort of walking their dogs a little bit further out of the, um, you know, sort of parameter of their of their immediate residences and, and, and getting fined and things, I think there will be a public backlash. Um, I mean, in Britain, people tend to be quite sensible about these things. And I think provided that, um, you know, there's there's adequate communication and and police uh, uh, are sensible about enforcing it. I think people will be quite tolerant for for a period of time. Um, you know, we've seen in other countries, in Italy, and you know, in even in, in parts of um, uh, of France, that that there are part, sectors of the population, especially young people, that don't necessarily want to around at home. In, in South Korea, for example, the, there's a, a fairly high incident, incidence of COVID-19 among 20-year-olds uh, and under 20s because they go to academies in the evening and they still mm. study. So it's very hard to enforce this across all segments of society. And they're going to have to make decisions about where the biggest risks lie and choose the enforcement carefully, I suspect. Yeah, I suppose part of what's so difficult is that this legislation was rushed through. If you look at what's in the wording of it, a lot of it is sort of non-exhaustive lists of what may or may not be allowed. And then the government also making other recommendations that have not been written to the law and the police looking at all of this and trying to consolidate it and yeah. find out what actually you have to enforce. But anyway, let's move on. I want to ask you about a thing that we discussed with Alison Thulis briefly, and it's about the future of Parliament. It's a really antiquated institution. You can't even vote without being in person. But now we're seeing she was talking about Zoom meetings, uh, at least at a smaller scale. Do you think that there are certain aspects of this experience that are going to get carried forward and will perhaps modernise uh, Parliament and, and maybe other institutions as well? I think that's probably inevitable. I mean, Parliament was heading toward change anyhow, simply because the building itself is so dilapidated that it, it needed, um, you know, quite uh, quite extensive repairs and an overhaul. I mean, I, it, recently the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, made a statement setting out some of the changes to the way the House is going to operate. And these include divisions, which are the formal votes, would be staggered so that, you know, MPs walking through the 
lobbies at one time would be limited. So there were already um, uh, certain changes that were coming into play. Now that uh, we've got sort of full isolation, uh, there's a question of whether Parliament can do more things differently. For example, um, committee meetings, uh, how they, you know, could those be held remotely? Um, changes to to standing orders, the formally agreed rules uh, would require, say, you know, the government to bring forward a motion that the MPs could agree to, but um, this could be done in a different way. So there's all sorts of suggested changes. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.